Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider, deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are like shadows, clouding children's days with fears of unknown calamities. Other beliefs are like sunshine, blessing children with the warmth of happiness. Some beliefs are divisive, separating the saved from the unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in the world community, where sincere differences beautify the path. Some beliefs are like blunders, shutting off the power to choose one's own direction. Other beliefs are like gateways, opening wide vistas for exploration. Some beliefs weaken a person's selfhood. They blight the growth of resourcefulness. Other beliefs nurture self-confidence and enrich the feeling of personal worth. Some beliefs are rigid, like the body of death, impotent to, in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable, like the young sap, ever-growing with the upward thrust of life. So did you notice that the author of the responsive reading doesn't contrast specific beliefs? Instead, she talks about types of belief. Beliefs that are de fearful, divisive, and rigid on the one hand, and beliefs that are pliable, inspire happiness, and draw people together on the other hand. I'm proud to belong to a religion that values the latter type of beliefs. And really, I just don't worry about the specifics of beliefs. We might think that this makes our religion special, but you know what? There are people in all the world's religions who feel very much like us. They're not as concerned with specific beliefs as they are with the consequences of beliefs. These people are called religious liberals. Let me explain what I mean by this term. People who are religiously liberal are curious and innovative. They seek guidance from a variety of sources, including their own conscience. They're open to new scientific discoveries and new social directions. They're different from religious conservatives who trust tradition and their own scriptures and religious leaders above all else. Now, of course, all religions contain both liberal and conservative elements. So rather than an either-or binary, religious attitudes might be placed on a continuum that stretches all the way from very conservative at one end to very liberal at the other, with every shade in between. And people are complicated. Some people are liberal in some areas and conservative in other areas. Take Pope Francis, for example. He holds a traditionally conservative view of God in the Bible. He does not condone clerical roles for women or homosexuals in the Roman Catholic Church. A priest must be male and celibate. On the other hand, he's ready to take on the establishment when it comes to economic and environmental justice. Because people are complicated, so are religions. 
One thing we can say with certainty, though, is that the majority of Unitarian Universalists fall on the liberal end of the continuum, no matter how you cut it. UUs are proud of being willing to change their views when they encounter new ideas. Looking to our own history, we point to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who declared that consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. If something doesn't make sense to us, as the ritual of communion in the Unitarian Church didn't make sense to Emerson, well, we chuck it. No problem. Religious liberals are open to diversity because we're open to new ideas. Diversity doesn't scare us. If a person tells us that they don't identify as either male or female, or they identify as both male and female, we say, sure, that's fine, even if the idea is new to us. A conservative religious person, on the other hand, distrusts change, and this leads to distrusting diversity. This person might respond to a non-binary individual by saying, God made us either male or female, and that settles it. Of course, that settles it for the religiously conservative person who reveres texts written millennia ago, but not for the non-binary person who is a living, breathing example that it is possible to be something other than purely male or purely female. It's rather like the church telling a Galileo that the earth has to be the center of the universe. And Galileo responding by, saying, by asking the clerics to look through his telescope for evidence to the contrary. But they couldn't bring themselves to do this because it would mean their fixed worldview would fall apart. It seems to me that people who are liberal have more in common with other liberals than they do with more conservative people in their own religion. Let me give you an example. Some of you know that Greg and I recently spent my brother's last 10 days of life with him. My brother was a Reformed Jew, and his wife is the rabbi of the only Reformed Jewish temple in Columbus, Georgia. During our time sitting in hospice, we got to know a couple of religious leaders who came to sit with the family often. Both women, one was a Methodist minister and one an Episcopal priest. They were both close friends with my brother and rabbi's sister-in-law because they had worked in interfaith and social justice groups together. Friends from the Reform Jewish Temple also came to sit, but the rabbi of, the, of Columbus's Orthodox synagogue never showed his face. I was really surprised by that, nor did any members who attend that synagogue. In other words, Liberal Christians formed a strong bond with my brother and sister-in-law, but those who were of Orthodox faith, even though Jewish, had minimal contact with them. Most of my research as a scholar of religion was anthropological. I loved to observe practices and talk to people about what they believed more than looking at religious texts and doctrines. When I talked to individuals of different faiths, I found that they're all over the map, just like us. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a few examples of surprises I've encountered over the years. A Muslim woman once told me that she reads the Yoga Sutras, which is a Hindu text, every day. 
I recall her words exactly. She said, reading the Yoga Sutras makes me a better Muslim. Another Muslim woman I spoke with believed that it is time for women to begin leading public prayers because, after all, she said, Allah is not male. These women are obviously at the liberal end of the spectrum of Islam. I once had a student, Justin, who identified as Orthodox Jew. He wore a full beard and yarmulke, ate kosher, practiced prayers and rituals on a daily basis. I was surprised when he told me one day that he didn't believe in God. He performed these rituals, including praying to God, because he liked the way they made him feel. But no, he was an atheist through and through. He also dabbled in Buddhism, like so many Americans, and was quite proficient at karate. Now, does an Orthodox Jewish Buddhist-inspired atheist karate black belt seem like an anomaly to you? <laughs> to me, Justin is just one example of many contemporary religious people we find today who don't seem to fit in the category we want to fall, call a world religion. Like I said, religion is complicated. The problem with even discussing world religions is that it tends to deflect this complexity. The whole idea of world religions arose, frankly, from a Christian perspective. When Europeans began exploring the world in the early 16th century, it seemed natural to also convert the world to what they viewed as the supreme truth of the Christian trinity. Their formula for understanding other religions was simple. They asked, how does this religion compare to Christianity? Remnants of this attitude still prevail. The first thing we want to know about a religion is, what do they believe? Not understanding that belief in God or other supernatural beings may not be important at all. This happens when people use the belief model to try to understand Confucianism or some forms of Taoism and Buddhism, or even Unitarian Universalism. Our desire to divide the world's religions into tiny, tidy boxes misses the point that religions have always changed when they've encountered new cultures, new religions, or new scientific discoveries. How much more change occurs today when religions intermingle in every major city in the world. One idea that had to go as globalization increased was the view that one truth fits all. Religious liberals understand this and find it exciting to learn about different perspectives. But in our haste to accept these perspectives, we still want to simplify. We ask, what do Buddhists practice? Or what do Christians believe, as if a religion could be boiled down to a few beliefs and practices? We might call this the container view of religion. We look at each religion as a separate container that holds unique attributes. And this halts the natural evolution and innovation that wants to take place. 
I just read a memoir called Educated. Anybody read that book? You should read it. It's, it's incredible. It's about a Mormon fundamentalist survivalist family in Idaho. The matriarch of the family uses herbs and natural healing practices. What I find interesting is that she adds to her healing arts the idea that chakras become imbalanced and need tuning. So this is a natural evolution we could call the emergence of Hindu-inflected Mormonism. <laughs> Another problem with the idea of world religions is that the religions are usually understood from descriptions outside of the religion. When I was studying Hinduism as a graduate student, I had an elderly Hindu professor who told the class a story. He was enrolling in what in India is called an English medium school. He was just a child at the time. There he was, sitting with his grandmother, filling out a form, when he came across a question that he found confusing. The form wanted him to declare a religion. He had not heard the term Hinduism at that point. You might wonder how a person could live in India and not know what Hinduism is. It's because the word came from outsiders. Little history, at first the, the word Hindu came from the Greeks and it referred to people who live east of the Sindhu River, today called the Indus River in Pakistan. It didn't refer to a religion at all. Sindhu eventually morphed into Hindu. And the British Empire added the ism and made it into a religious designation that contained a huge variety of beliefs and practices. Basically, anything that was not monotheistic religion in India was called Hinduism. Bingo, a major world religion was invented. However, the word took a while to seep into people's vocabulary. To this day, many Hindus refer to the religion as Sanatana Dharma, which means the way things have always been done. So back to my professor's story. He didn't know how to answer the question about his religion, so he turned to his grandmother. But she also didn't know how to answer the question. An administrator from the school overheard them talking and told them that they were Hindu. <laughs> they didn't know this because they'd never had to fill out such a form before. They came from a small village and knew that they practiced certain festivals centered on the harvest or a village goddess. And they knew that women fasted for the family on certain days. And they knew that they told certain stories at different phases of the moon. But they also intermingled with their Muslim neighbors and attended their festivals. They could easily have called themselves Buddhist because the Lord Buddha for them was one of their avatars or incarnations of God. In fact, because they had this idea of avatars, the story of Jesus made perfect sense to them when they heard it from missionaries and so they added a picture of Jesus to their altar. Okay. Were they Hindus, or Buddhists, or Muslims, or Christians, or maybe none of the above, or maybe all of the above? 
It was the British with their love of categories and censuses that created divisions where none had existed in many of these Indian villages in the early 20th century. By naming the separate divisions, people unwittingly began to identify with the container view of religion. The understanding grew that if I am a Hindu, I am only a Hindu and not anything else. And once we see ourselves as different from our neighbors, we begin to stick to our own kind. And sticking to our own kind has unfortunate consequences. For the Indian subcontinent, the consequence was the death of two million people, two million people, when Pakistan became a separate country designated for Muslims and India became the country designated for Hindus. The deaths didn't occur with a formal war, but with ordinary civilians slaughtering one another. This is just one example of the sheer insanity that takes place in the name of distinct world religions. Did I mention that religion is complicated? Let's consider Buddhism for a minute. A lot of people in the West are attracted to this religion because it's so rational. And it is for some Buddhists. But like all religions, Buddhism is multifaceted. For example, you might have learned that Buddhists are atheists, and the Buddha was just a man. But if you talk to someone who practices pure land Buddhism, she would say, oh, the Buddha is much more than just a man. He's a celestial deity who dwells in heaven. And when I die, I'll live with Amitabha Buddha for eternity not because of anything I've done, but because I believe in him. Sounds a bit like a Buddhist form of Protestant Christianity, doesn't it? Consider Buddhist relic worship. If you were to visit Kandy, Sri Lanka, you would wit witness what is believed to be the Buddha's tooth being worshipped daily. Not such a harmful practice, you might think, but for those who believe their country is home to the Buddha's tooth, it's just a small step to declaring themselves a Buddhist country. That means no room for Hindus. Never mind that Hindus have lived in Sri Lanka since the 10th century. The indirect consequence of believing in the Buddha's tooth was a war in 2009 in which 9,000 people lost their lives. When I taught world religions, Hinduism was the most difficult religion for students to make sense of. The main reason non-Hindus have a hard time wrapping their head around Hinduism is because it has so many layers. It's the oldest religion in the world that has been practiced continuously to the present. There's no founder and no canon to set limits on it. So whenever a new idea comes along, it's added to the rest. Hindus recognize that different people are attracted to different ideas and beliefs, so they have four paths. One path for intellectuals, one path for lovers of God, one for people who want to experience higher states of consciousness, and one for people who want to live a good life. The last is called karma yoga, the yoga of action. Now, I've talked to many doctors in my research on Hinduism in America who say that they are atheists, but still they identify as Hindu because they treat their patients with respect and understanding. 
They practice karma yoga. Sounds a, a little bit like you, you to me. What if religions everywhere accepted that some people are mystics and others are intellectuals? Some are lovers of God and others are lovers of the earth. Would people be less likely to try to convert others to, the way, to their way of thinking? Would there be less violence in the name of religion? Perhaps we're headed in the right direction as more and more people declare that they're spiritual but not religious. Spirituality seems less rigid than religion. Religious scholar Stephen Prothero has stated that the propensity of Americans to choose their spiritual path from a variety of sources is, quote, very much in the spirit of Hinduism. He said, it's about whatever works. If going to yoga works, great. And if going to Catholic mass works, great. And if going to Catholic mass plus a yoga plus a Buddhist retreat works, that's great too. But there's also a downside to spiritual but not religious. Often the groups that form around spiritual but not religious are fluid or they exist online. And in either case, there's often little continuity. For loners, this might be fine, but most people need community. And this is why I don't think religion will go away or should go away. Community not only offers us friends and joy and solace, but a long-term commitment to a religion provides a way for people to care for one another in all stages of life. It also provides a way to develop and share with others new language and metaphors for life-affirming qualities and ideas. These positive ideas can then be passed down to future generations. And for religious liberals, if these ideas are no longer useful, they can be discarded and new language for new world conditions can be created. Today, for example, practices, rituals, metaphors, and social actions that honor and support our earth are, are occurring in all of the world's religions. Religions don't necessarily have to invent new practices and ideas, though, because the religions already contain them. They just need to bring a renewed emphasis to them. What a heartwarming idea is the Jewish concept of tikkun olum, olam, repairing the world. In, or, in Orthodox um, Judaism, Tikkun Olam refers to overcoming idolatry. But now, Reformed Judaism and other religions as well are inspired by the concept of repairing the world as overcoming injustice. The Buddhist idea of the interconnected web of existence is also espoused by many religious and secular groups, including Unitarian Universalism. We're all reminded by indigenous religions that we are part of the natural world. We find inspiration in the Southern African concept of Ubuntu, meaning I am because we are. We learn from Confucian's respect for ancestors. The Taoist nature metaphors teach us how to be in the world flowing like water and yielding like the willow tree in the wind. The Hindu's idea of the sacred feminine which is found and honored in the mysteries of the natural world, has become an important metaphor. 
Raymond Panikkar, a Catholic priest and a proponent of interfaith dialogue, asked fellow Christians what it might mean to focus on contributing to the world's faiths rather than dominating them. Great question, isn't it? He compared the world's religions to rivers, one flowing through Rome, one through Israel, one through Iraq, etc. He said the rivers don't meet on earth, but they do in the heavens, where water from each condenses into clouds and rains down on all people. We of liberal faith, no matter the religion, revel in learning the specialized customs of different religions. At the same time, though, we reject the suppression of human rights in the name of religion, and we reject religious nationalism, whether Christian nationalism in America, Hindu nationalism in India, Muslim nationalism in Saudi Arabia, or Buddhist nationalism in Myanmar. It's time to go beyond container views of religions, of nations, of races, and of ethnicities, and to embrace our connections as humans. For this reason, even as we may reject some conservative views, we must seek to connect with the humans who hold them. We are fortunate, as you use, to be able to choose inspiration where we find it. But this also gives us the responsibility of choosing carefully. Whether we're drawing from the world's sacred traditions or secular wisdom, let's choose ideas and beliefs that draw us into compassionate community and hope-filled action. Let's show our love by being there for those who are hurting and in need, no matter their religion or ethnicity. Let's open the borders of our own hearts to in order to receive those whose life conditions are unbearable. This, in my opinion, is a helpful way of understanding world religions and our connection as you use to them. If we can all learn from one another's faiths and use what we learn to heal the world, I believe there is hope for the 21st century. Thank you.